Good evening. So thankful to see everyone here. I know um, every time we gather, there's a lot of choices to be made, but particularly tonight, a lot of choices to be made, and I appreciate your presence. My name is Blake Dozier, and I'm the youth and family minister here filling in in Chris's absence, so he will be back with us next week. Those of you who know me might be aware that I always have an idea up my sleeve. I kind of think sometimes I might should have been an architect. My wife, however, is the realist who nixes all of my genius ideas. So I'll let y'all kind of be the judge. Um, my top two ideas, idea number one, a clothis. This is an office installed in a closet also known as a safe place from the children where you could get stuff done. So it's really an easy thing. You just have to get rid of most of your clothes because you really don't need that many. And then you put your office in your closet. Or the thankery, okay? The thankery I designed is this special round room for nothing but thinking. Brianna said it sounded better as a nappery, so we nixed that idea. Um, When my cousin Zach and I were little kids, we had intricate plans for how to construct this special garage for our four-wheelers, complete with living quarters. And I mean, this thing was decked out. We didn't have land to put it on, and we didn't even own four-wheelers. But we had this grand plan for this place that we were going to hang out and spend all of this time together. Many of you have put a lot of thought into the spaces that you occupy. You know, Chip and Joanna Gaines have single-handedly altered the landscape of home living in the 21st century to include white shiplack walls and black fixtures. Um, enormous amount of thought goes into our homes. It's where we sleep, where we eat, where we relax, raise our children, let our hair down. It's where we cry and rejoice and hurt and get relief. It's where we smell our best and where we smell our worst. It's within the walls of our home that some of our most important work is done on ourselves and our children. With our homes, we extend hospitality or reclusively retreat. Not everyone is blessed with a home. For some, life has made it difficult to consider anywhere home. For many of the younger years of King David, this would have been the case. Our young people right now are studying 2 Samuel and they're learning all about King David. And at first glance, the story that we find there seems to center completely around him. 1 Samuel tells us about his shepherd years when he was anointed by God, where he defeated Goliath. And then we move into 2 Samuel and we see um, God making good on this promise to make him king where he is promoted to be the or he moves into the role of king of Judah and eventually king of all of Israel like God said he was. He's a man that we know as a man after God's own heart. We look to him as an example of faith and repentance. He's a key character in the biblical narrative. And this David whom we have grown to admire and love spent the first 30 years of his life in transition. Shepherding and then running from Saul, knowing that God had anointed him and yet never seeming to find the right time to make good on the promise. At times he finds himself in caves, he finds himself hungry, he finds himself in danger. But one place that we don't see him finding himself until 2 Samuel is in a house where he can retreat and experience rest. It wasn't until he was 37 years old that he had a house, and by all standards, it would have been a nice one. 
In 2 Samuel chapter 5, we're told that skilled craftsmen out of Tyre came and they built him a house out of cedar and out of stone. And it's interesting how a little bit of comfort and a little bit of leisure can be a breeding ground for self-reflection and thought. For the first time in a lot of years, David was able to breathe and relax. And as he did, his heart became full with a thought. Let's read in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and see what this thought was. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go. And do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Have you ever had a moment of awakening? Kind of an aha moment, we might call it. Sometimes these are exciting things, like maybe you remember back to the math years, when the algebra formula finally made sense, and it clicked, and you understood. Sometimes these things are a little more gut-wrenching, like when you realize you're 50 miles from the closest gas station, and you have only 25 miles left on the indicator on your dashboard. One moment you're carefree, and the next all you can think about is this newly discovered reality. This was David's aha moment. and We would almost universally agree that he was right for having it. After all God had done, it seems wrong for God to be in a tent and for David to live in a house. I understand where David is coming from. If I stopped and took inventory, I would find that I'm guilty alongside of David with a lot of misplaced priorities. And so that's why I find it particularly perplexing when I read God's response in the verses that follow. Let's take a look. 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we'll start reading in verse 4. As we read... Let me tell you what you're going to hear God say so you can be listening for it. I'm going to summarize these 16 or 12 verses. God is going to tell David, I don't need you to build me a house. You need me to build you one. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people from Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, the Lord will make you a house. 
When your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. I don't need you to build me a house. You need me to build you one. As we meditate on God's answer to David, I want to draw you to three teaching points that I believe we see in this text. You know, it's easy to make the mistake of thinking the book of 2 Samuel is simply a story about King David or a snippet of Israel's history. While it is indeed these two things, it wasn't written down for us so that we would know about David, so that we would know about the nation of Israel, or so we would know who was going to build a temple for God. These accounts were written down for us so we can mold our view and understanding of God into one that is right. God is teaching us about himself. He is teaching us about his plan. And he helps us correctly situate his creation among those two things. Namely, and most immediately pertinent to us, our own lives and desires. Himself, his plan, and ourselves. Let's quickly together walk through these three elements this evening. We're going to begin with what the Word of God teaches us about God Himself. For it is from these foundational thoughts all of the rest flow. God is all-powerful. God is in complete control. And God doesn't need David or you. God builds His case with a series of rhetorical questions. He said, did I ask you to build me a house? And then he moves on and he gives evidence to David from his past interactions. I brought you from shepherd to ruler. And he ends by revealing what he plans to do. God says, I will build you a house. You see, these first two observations, his demonstration of power and control, exerted throughout history and promised into the future, they create some tension for me. But the final observation hits home. It's a tough pill to swallow, and its implications will unpack in our final element. I want you to turn your eyes to the text for just a second and skim with me through verses 14 through 16. And as you do, I want you to look at how God talks about David and how God talks about himself. You see, God is always the actor, and David is always the recipient. As I look through this text, I see I have, I brought, I have, I have, I took, I have, I will, I will, I will, I appointed, I will, the Lord will, when you do something, I will, I will, I will, he shall and I will, I will and he shall, when he, I will, but my, as I, your kingdom shall be made, your throne shall be established. Take that home and read it and read the language and absorb the language. Over and over again, God is communicating and showing David and showing us that he is the actor in this story. And David and his descendants are simply the recipients and responders 
to his action. When I was in college, I had a pretty sweet deal worked out. Once per week, I would take this dirty bag of laundry that probably one of y'all gave to me, because I think it had my initials on it, to A1 Corn Metals where my grandfather worked. And we would visit for a little bit, and on my way out, he had this magical place in the back of his truck that if I dropped that bag of laundry, the next day when I came back, it would be smelling good and folded, and on the top would be a plate of fresh brownies with one missing. Never could figure out where the one brownie went to. It was a pretty sweet deal. Um, I would swing by for another visit. I would pick that up, and I would go on my way. So when I first told my wife about this, uh, this magical place in the truck, she thought I was pretty pathetic. Why? <laughs> because what, what kind of spoiled college student gets to be the recipient of such undeserved service and benefit? That was me. You know, my grandmother didn't have to do that. She didn't owe it to me. She didn't receive any direct benefit from doing my laundry. She chose to gift me that service for no reason at all other than out of her love for me. She was the actor, and I was the recipient. I had very little to add to that conversation. God basically tells David this. I didn't ask you to build me a house. In fact, I have asked very little of you. You have brought nothing of inherent value to the table. How about I build you a house? I was working before you showed up. In Egypt, in the wilderness, and amongst the judges. I've been working in your life. Remember how I manifested my power and control. Remember when you killed the lion and the bear. And remember the story of Goliath. And when you were protected from Saul. And when you were fed my bread. And how I've worked powerfully in everything that you've done. How I've helped you win impossible battles against impossible odds. In ways that can only be explained by the oversight of a divine being like myself. God in these few verses makes some powerful observations about what he has done and what he will continue to do. And in doing so, he declares his sovereign power over all creation. He directs David's attention to his sovereign power over all creation. And he shows that he has both the track record and the plan to exercise that power in a way that serves his purposes. So what about his plan? It was both immediate and forward-looking. Rest for Israel, a house made for David, and an eternal kingdom made through his offspring. Look at verses 11 through 13. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Notice again with me the language. It is all centered around God as the actor. He continues to use the phrase, I will. Notice also that God's language is filled with confidence. There's not a hint of, I will try, or the current plan is maybe to do it like this. God simply says, here is what I'm going to do. And finally, we notice that God chooses to carry out his plan using his people. He says, I will, but he shall. 
History bears witness to the truthfulness of what God speaks of here. David's immediate offspring, Solomon, did build a house for God, a temple. But it was also through David's lineage that Jesus came and that an eternal throne and kingdom was established. I'm confident that God's plan will not fail. First of all, because God is God. But second of all, because we live in an era of this fulfilled promise. We are members of his household, of this eternal kingdom that he speaks of, and it's ruled by his son who sits on the throne. And while it's not a physical or political kingdom, it is permanent, it is everlasting, it is unfailing, it has prevailed for 2,000 years, and it's going to continue to prevail until the world is destroyed with fire and we're ushered into the new Jerusalem that's talked about in Revelation. And how does he accomplish this? He has always chosen to use his people for his plan. He started with Israel. He is using David. He existed as Christ and he continues to work through his church. While he was the primary actor, while he was the force behind the plan, the plan has been and will continue to be carried out using his people. I remember it like it was yesterday. Coach McCoy, some of you here might remember him. I was on the Jim Ned football team and I was this scrawny 160-pound linebacker and fullback who had no business playing, but they didn't really have a lot of option because we were a 2A school. He had a plan, and I'm sure in his head it was a good plan, but it depended on me holding on to the football. I don't know, of all conversations, I remember this one because he was in my face mask, Dozier, don't you let go of that football, and he sent me in for the play. Well, he should have known better than to depend on me because I had the clunky hands I was an immature and unskilled running back. I couldn't hold in onto anything, and I sure wasn't holding onto the football. It wasn't long before his plan had to change because of the fact that it was dependent on me to carry it out. I got moved to tackle duty only pretty quick in my career, and that was probably a better plan. <laughs> this plan was directed by Coach McCoy, but it was fulfilled by his players, by the people. And because of this, it was uncertain. And it often failed. This is not the case with God. While he uses his people to carry out his plan, it is fulfilled by him and will not fail. His people may fail, and they often do, but he will not. The truth plays out in the next few chapters. David commits the sin of adultery, followed by the sin of murder. And while David suffers dreadful consequences for his sin... God redeems his sin and uses that situation to bring Solomon into this world. And a child from this relationship ushers in the birth of Jesus Christ years later. God doesn't need you. God doesn't depend on you. But God very well might have chosen to use you. Because of who he is and because of his nature, even your brokenness cannot sidetrack his master plan. So finally, we find ourselves left with the final question. Knowing what we can observe about God, how does this translate into our personal lives? And if I could summarize it in one word, the word I would choose would be humility. Everything you have is because of Him. Everything you have gained is because of Him. He is your hope. He is your joy. He is the reason for your faithfulness. 
He gave us this family. He gave us these relationships. He's blessed us with the very air that we breathe. And lest you think I'm reading too much into this Old Testament passage, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. You see, in Acts chapter 17, we see Paul in front of the men of Athens in the Areopagus, and he teaches them something about God that sounds pretty similar to what we see here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'll start in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. All of the things God is communicating to us about himself in 2 Samuel is repeated here. He is the Almighty from whom all things flow. He is acting with a plan and a purpose. We are not needed by him, but we need him more than anything. And any contribution that we do make is because he has allowed us to. He doesn't need anything. Instead, he is the giver of everything. And in light of that knowledge, what other response can we give than the response of David in verses 18 and 22? The response of humility in verse 18. Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And in verse 22, the glory being given to God. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God beside you. Some people exist without giving more than a passing glance to their creator. And if this is you, I would urge you to stop and take note of all that you see around you. His presence is evident. But many of us here tonight are long-term Christians. I want you to consider with me just for a moment how our brokenness can manifest itself in some really well-intentioned desires. We look around us and we see all that is there and we begin to think, wow, we've really been blessed. We need to do something big with all of these blessings God has given us. So if you are maybe a student, it might look something like this. I have this gift on the athletic field, or this gift of book smarts, or this gift of grit and work ethic that have really allowed me to excel in a certain area. I wonder, what should I build for God with this? Or if you are maybe a young professional, you might look at yourself and say, look at all that I've been given. Look at this job or this circle of really awesome friends. 
with this incredible supportive family or maybe even this church family that you've been blessed to find. And you look at all those blessings and say, wow, look at all that I've been given. I wonder what I should build for God with this. Or if you're a parent, this hits home for me. I open my eyes and I say, man, look at all that I've been given. Maybe it's a job or friends, but for most parents, you're probably thinking about your children. I wonder what I should build for God with this. What should I build for God with them? Maybe you're an empty nester or a retiree. And after all you've poured into your children, now you have freedom and maybe some extra time and some extra wisdom. And maybe you find yourself wondering, look at all that I've been given. I wonder what I should build for God with this. Tread lightly and keep this in the forefront of your mind. He is the reason for all that you have, not you. And he is your only hope for the future. And he will indeed use you, but he doesn't need you. And if you left this world today, his plan wouldn't fail. Your children, they wouldn't fail. He's put a community around them, and he works in providential ways to bring about his good purposes. May your view of yourself always be tempered with humility as you stand before our God, and may your life point others toward him and him alone and never yourself. Even our children are at the mercy of God. We can provide nothing to them without him. And he can provide everything to them without us, if he chose. We say, God, let me build you a house. And he says, no, I'll build you a house. No, I have built you a house. When we see him in the right light and understand ourselves in the right light, we become people of humility and people of prayer, constantly entreating to God to stand in the gaps over which we are unable to stand. In our lives and the lives of our children and for the church in the face of a hostile culture, we become a people who rightly place our trust and our faith entirely and completely in God. And it's humbling. And it's also comforting. At camp last year, I was introduced to a song by Casting Crowns. I'm not much of a song listener to her. I'm more of a driving silence type person. But the chorus of this song is one I've thought about a lot. It's called Legacy, and you should look it up. All the lyrics are good. It said, I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't care if they remember me. Only Jesus. I've thought about this a lot, and I wrestle with it because I do want to leave a legacy. I mean, I want it to be a good legacy. I want it to be a faithful legacy. But i got to be honest. I want one. And as I learn to rightly understand God, as I am taught by His Word and shaped and it molds and shapes my view of who He is, I'm learning to see and wrestle with this piece of foolishness that I hold on to. As an architect, I have very little of value to offer, and nothing I design is eternal. I'm a much better laborer working under the direction of the architect and crafting something of his design so his eternal glory might be manifested to all who will see. May we live our lives so that no one notices us, but only God. I want to leave you with these words from the book of Romans. 
As Paul is shifting gears in Romans, he's just finished describing the glorious detail of the workings of God and salvation. And as he's wrapping that up, here is what he writes. I'm going to read verse 33 and 36 to you. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. May we never make the mistake of assuming God needs us. May we never miss the reality of what God has done for us. And may our lives be lived in a way that everything we do points to this reality. This is about his legacy, his kingdom, his purpose, his plan. Him, 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 him. The divine architect, the master craftsman, the source from which all things point, the designer from which all things flow, from him, through him, and to him. Amen. It is our tradition to offer an invitation, and we're going to do so tonight. If you have struggled with a self-centered life, if you have struggled to put the emphasis on you and what you can do instead of focusing on Him and giving the glory to Him, if you need prayers of this church, if you need encouragement, if you have studied and understand baptism, what it means, and tonight's the night to join this family and to have this hope, then the invitation is yours, and we invite you to come forward as we stand and as we sing.